With the Enlightenment and the birth of rationalism and the end of demon talk, Babylon loses its scary fangs. It loses its place in the universal history of the world. And it loses its place as a seductive evil. Hello and welcome to Why Are We Talking About The Rabbits? That's my French accent. Rabbits are things that run around fast on the internet, reproducing, running down rabbit trails. We don't talk about them. We talk about the heavy things done lightly. That's right. Heavy things lightly. We figure out using theology, philosophy, all kinds of things, exactly what's going on in our world. What is old world? What is new? How do they go together? How should we implement these wise things from the past while living a very modern life? Why are we talking about rabbits? Today, we talk about slave castles, Chuck D. from Public Enemy, the notion of Babylon, and leftovers. Mm. On water. Yeah, so today I want to talk about leftovers. I want to talk about what happened to me recently on a trip to Mozambique, where I learned about leftovers, slave castles, and the notion of Babylon, all told to me by Chuck D., at least in my head. So this new world, old world conversation is going to, I think, create a concept where we see that there's an idea out there that that was really impressing, pressing hard upon me uh, and uh, on us as we work with First Things Foundation. That's why we were there in Mozambique with my friend Josh. We went to visit and see if we should go here and do our nonprofit work. By the way, you can find out about that nonprofit work at www.first-things.org. So we were looking to see if we should send somebody to this part of the world, East Africa. I had never been to that part, to Mozambique. And now I have been, and now I'm telling you about it. So what do I want to tell you about? Leftovers, like I said. I learned about leftovers. And I learned about what Chuck D has always been saying about leftovers. And I'm going to tell you about it today. So first, this edge of the edge of the world, because that's how it felt, where red clay of... Mozambique meets the roiling waters of the Indian Ocean. This place that we visited, man, it's incredible. It was teaching in sort of every minute, waking minute that I had there. It was just a teaching place. And what I learned is, is the things I, I was learning about Mozambique were not really that far removed from the things that I'm learning all the time about America. So there was an old world, new world connection. So why was it close? Where... Well, like so many coastlines up and down East Africa and West Africa and South Africa, you can find forts, slave castles built by the European of your choice, the Dutch, the British, the Portuguese, these big, thick walled slave castles. You find them all around. And what you find inside of them if you go inside, and I've been in a number, and this was quite a slave castle, the one we were visiting when I was in Mozambique just now, just two weeks ago, is you can find the rooms where the slaves were stored and bundled up and boarded in preparation for their long journey, their really nasty journey across the Atlantic Ocean, right? So this Indian Ocean slave castle would take a lot of people, bend them around Cape of Good Hope and toward Brazil mostly. That's where the Portuguese did a lot of their business. And standing there looking at that fort 
in this town called the Ile de Mozambique, which has every kind of person you can imagine. Brown, black, white, red bone, high yellow, blue, black, you name it. Every kind of person there. You, 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 this quaint town with this giant fort, you start to, well, you just start to realize a few things. The first thing you realize is the slave trade was real, okay? <laughs> it made up. And it has real consequences. So quick things about slavery that you might want to know, okay? The first major slave trade out of Africa started in the 8th century with Arab traders, landing all up and down the East Coast, exactly where I was, and trading through India, but also trading mostly into the Arabian Peninsula. The 17 million Africans were traded. Just to give you perspective, the Atlantic slave trade, which the Portuguese really participated in, not the Arab trade, that took about 12 million Africans off the continent. So actually more folks went to Saudi Arabia. And basically about half of that 17 million went overland, and another half, about 9 million, went via ships, the Indian Ocean, then the Red Sea. By the middle 1600s, though, you get these international markets, these emerging global markets, right, driven by the, by the new world discoveries, if you want to call them that. It's probably not the greatest word, but the new world experience of people like Columbus and Vasco da Gama, who actually landed on the, at the place that I was standing at the Ile de Mozambique, uh, all those cats that were out exploring, well, they were opening up new emerging markets that eventually those markets were driven by cheap labor, slavery, and they were producing things like sugar and spices and um, all kinds of um, variations on coffee. All these new addictions. If you think about sugar and coffee, they're kind of addictive, right? So these new emerging markets they were starting to bring back large profits, but it demanded cheap labor. You get the concept. So in order to get the cheap labor, people like the Portuguese started to cooperate with local ethnic groups that controlled whole swaths of land along the coast. People like the Prazos, the Yao, the Tsonga, the Makua, the Swahili. They began to trade with European traders, right? They would take folks from as far as Zimbabwe, in terms of the East Coast of Mozambique, that's 800 miles inland, you would find ethnic groups being plundered for their human capital. So the first slaves to depart Africa for the New World Trade were in 1502. And they went to what is today the Dominican Republic. By 1513, you saw people landing in Jamaica. That would be 4,000 Africans. By... 1526, you saw people in Central America, places like Guatemala and Honduras. So the first enslaved Africans to land in what we now know as the United States came around 1526 as, as a part of a Spanish attempt to colonize San Miguel de Guadalupe. The place where I stood, however, the Castle de Mozambique, that place was built in 1507. It's the oldest European building in the Southern Hemisphere. It's believed that as many as 500,000 Africans were moved through that part of Mozambique and that castle. That's a lot of people. 
So why am I telling you all this? Well, the light people trade, and on this show we know that's people who are driven by enlightenment values, the values of really the modern world. The light people slave trade, also known as the transatlantic slave trade, took something like 12 million people from Africa. And basically, what you really want to know about this is that the trade, its nature, the culture of this particular trade, it, it's very akin to the culture or the nature of the cocaine trade, right? In Central and South America today, cocaine or drugs in general, meth, whatever it is that's being brought up, it's a dirty business. People do it. People get rich. Many people are, quote, legitimate businessmen connected to it, but all of them are dirty in some way, grimy. And that is the slave trade for these 300 years. It's a very grimy business. Nobody bragged about being a trader. And very few businessmen back in the new world were like, yeah, look what our slave money built. Why? Because think about it. It's nasty. It's moving human beings against their will. So merchants got wealthy. Businessmen got wealthy. They wrapped their wealth around them and bought nice stuff and then called themselves traders. But this trade was grimy. Everybody knew it. It wasn't like a revelation that a slave trader had to do very dirty business. So what did this kind of dirty, very dirty business produce? Well, it produced more than 12 million people. Here are some numbers on who produced the 12 million in terms of the actual movers of human beings. The Portuguese moved about 40% of all Africans who left the continent. The British produced uh, about 28%. The British moved most of their African slaves to the British West Indies, to the Caribbean. 10% of all the slaves moved out of Africa. 10% went to what we call today the United States. The Spanish moved about 18% of the total trade, and the French about 14%. Now, how do we know these numbers? Well, we really don't very well, because, like I said, well, it wasn't something you published. It wasn't something you kept a lot of track of. They've tried to re go back and figure out exactly how many people were on each boat, etc., but it's very hard to do. Only the slavers knew, and they weren't really hip on telling people. So basically, these numbers are generalized, but they're pretty good. Let's go with 12 million. And so being at this castle, this massive homage to human bondage, it was kind of depressing. But there was an ingenuity to it all. There was a very uniquely, how should we say, um, um, smart uh, intelligent, well-planned and processed culture to the place. It was massive and it just reeked of control and command and a weird technological beauty. Those big walls had purpose, right? And this makes me think of Public Enemy and Chuck D. Play it, Andrew. Play some Chuck D right now. I don't care if we're going to get in trouble. Play it. Brother's going to work it out. That's what that is right there, guys. Chuck D. This is your producer speaking. No Chuck D. Copyright law. And I really liked Chuck D back when I bought up pretty much every rap album I could between, say, 1980 and 1995.
yeah, that was what I did. But then, I don't know, the 90s, you saw this birth of gangster rap, and that kind of confused me because I was not a gangster, and I was white, and mostly, you know, I couldn't keep up. Ghost face killer. Yeah, that kind of was the beginning of the end for me. But Chuck D, nah, he was doing some really sweet and some really sour rhymes. Some narratives about life that always felt to me wise or something. They always had a throwback appeal, like a historian's appeal. They had a sharpness. Those those early days of rap, he seemed to encompass them while also, you know, being a little angry. And he loved to tell a good story. Yeah, he wasn't a gangster rapper talking about me instead of we. He was a we guy. He was an old world guy. He was an urban griot. Public enemy. Play some more right now, Andrew. I guess that put, the world put it has moved on. And it was in Mozambique two weeks ago that I realized just exactly what Ch Chuck D was doing. Chuck D was spitting at the walls. He was hammering away at the citadel. He was running up on those slave walls, those hulking slave walls, those forts in which he stood, and he was hammering away at them. Listen to these lyrics from Brothers Gonna Work It Out. All right, I'm going to read them. I think Andrew's going to get nervous about, well, you know, playing music that we don't own, which is a good thing to get nervous about. Here are the lyrics. Brothers Gonna Work It Out. So many of us in limbo, how to get it on, it's quite simple. Three stones from the sun, we need a piece of this rock. Our goal, indestructible soul. You can hear Chuck D identifying the earth, right? Three stones from the sun, three planets from the sun, the third stone, that's us. By the way, that's also a Jimi Hendrix song. The third stone from the sun is a place where Chuck's people don't have a foothold, a place to stand, a land. Talk about an old world concept. I mean, a man finds his identity in the land? That's like how it works in the old world. He says, we need a piece of this rock. That's that's a piece of this land. But which land? Well, it's the land he's on now. America, where he feels no part of, no piece of. Again, very old world concepts. Reaching out to identify yourself according to the land. Then he goes all in in another song, Fight the Power. He goes all in on Elvis. Listen to this. Elvis... Yeah, he was a hero to most, but to me, he never meant He was straight out racist. Yeah, that sucker was simple and plain. M, F, him, and John Wayne. He ends this particular verse. Don't worry, be happy. Yeah, that was the number one jam. Damn, if I say it, you can slap me right here. Chuck D! You hear him saying, yeah, uh, I'm good. 
I don't need your uh, mainstream because your mainstream put me on that damn boat. And then here's one more. My favorite public enemy song of all his songs. Can't trust it. From the base motherland, the place of the drum invaded by the whack diddy whack and fooled the black and left us faded. King and chief. Yeah, they probably had a big beef, which is exactly historically accurate. King and chief probably had a big beef because of that. Now I grit my teeth. So here's a song to the strong about the shake of the snake and the smile that went along with that. You can't trust it. Hmm. Chuck D. So why do I like Chuck D? Well, one, you got to hear the rap, the music. It's crazy. It's good. But Chuck D's not a slave in 1999 when he's writing this song. He knows he's not a slave. His words are symbolic, metaphorical, yet true, yet somehow not true. He's in the paradox. He's writing about the angst, the reality. He's writing about something greater, something deep, something shadowy, a shadow in the soul, something the Rastas sing about too, something the Jews wrote about, something the Christians talk about. And this thing, this shadow that he's writing about, it throws itself across and onto the Indian Ocean, the Atlantic Ocean, the Pacific Ocean. Heck, you can find the shadow in the woodlands of Russia, in the plains between the Euphrates, in Sumeria. Chuck D is rapping about something that still casts deep shadows upon every old world society on earth. And what is that? He's rapping about Babylon. That's right. That's what the Rastas call the shadow in their music. It's what Chuck D is referring to on his track, Don't Believe the Hype. And it's what Bob Marley calls the vampire culture, the vampire way in his song, Babylon System. And listen to these lyrics. Can I do one more time, a little lyrics? Let's do some lyrics. One last group of lyrics from a guy named Sizzla. You can look it up, S-I-Z-Z-L-A. Sizzla is a, is a reggae artist that once made 42 albums in one year. Let me just say that again. 42 albums in one year. What? Yes. Basically, Sizzla just sits and makes music all day long. Here's some lyrics from his song, Babylona. Babylon, listen from near and far. You, you can't hold down our youth. With no more house and no more cars. Here we, Ethiopia, ah, or there's going to be war. Babylon, listen from near and far. Don't even go ask them what they're searching for. Leave our youth. You can't hold our youths with no more house and no more cars. What? What? What's he saying? Cars ain't going to make our youth happy anymore. Listen to the old world, to Ethiopia. Fight Babylon. Listen up, Babylon. That's what he's saying. Listen up. The young people are starting to smell you out. Starting to smell out your system. He's writing that today. He's contemporary. And of course, if you know your Old Testament... As in Old World Testament, you know that 
by the rivers of Babylon is not a great place to be. The Jews, the protagonists of the story, well, they become slaves to Babylon. And so all these years later, here we see echoes of this story in Chuck D and Bob Marley and the Rastafarian parallel. And what is this thing, this shadow? This shadow that I'm calling Babylon? The word I want to share and I think works is strangeness. Strangeness is the key to understanding Babylon. And for all of these storytellers, Babylon becomes a symbol of a dark power forcing strangeness into human nature. Babylon is the thing that seeks control, command, order, and power. And here's the key, not even for itself, but it's so that it can denude and degrade human nature so that it can make us strangers even unto ourselves. Babylon is the place that makes a science out of offering the strange things we desire, but offering not out of love, but in order to control us. Babylon is hovering. And in this way, it's a type of shadow that bridges the old world and the new. You can't really say Babylon is an old world idea. It's spoken of a certain way in the old world. It's almost a type of eternal idea, though. It's kind of an idea that used to be called in the old world demonic. That's what it was called before the Enlightenment, when you really wouldn't talk about demons anymore, right? In fact, one might argue that the demons, yeah, that's a particularly old world concept, one we should do a pod on. And it's a concept that doesn't translate into the new world of the Enlightenment. And you could argue, because of that, that new worlders are more easily able to fall prey to the demons, if they exist, because they don't believe them to exist. And therefore, Babylon becomes a possibility in the new world. And it might be worse than that. You see... With the Enlightenment and the birth of rationalism and the end of demon talk, Babylon loses its scary fangs. It loses its place in the universal history of the world. And it loses its place as a seductive evil. And in many ways, well, in lots of ways, Babylon gains the leading man role in history since Voltaire and his utopian pals like Francis Bacon and Thomas Jefferson, since they started to actually embrace the idea of Babylon. In many ways, Babylon has become the good place, the power that we need to make things better. It's the power behind why we live longer and have air conditioning and, well, all the good stuff we modern people love. I love. Babylon is the power that hangs about in the world. And here's the controversial part of the pod. It's the power of the white people. I mean, light people. Sorry. I mean, it's not really white people in the truest melanin sense of the word. I mean, it's not like Babylon is melanin. It's not like Babylon is a straight nose. Babylon just appears to be white people. 
Babylon is light people in our age, people who command the material world so that they might command a better world. See, light people are akin to Babylon in this narrative because they know how to build slave walls back better. Light people, if you like to give them the chance, are really good at making things add up, round off, clean up. They're good at eliminating the remainder. They're good at making sure there's not so many leftovers. But guess what? There's always a leftover. Light people is the way I see it anyway. Going all the way back to Hammurabi, you see how the light concept, it 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 straddles old and new world. But going all the way back to Hammurabi, the guy who made all the laws, going all the way back to the Egyptian kings, the Babylonian kings, Nebuchadnezzar, they all desired a type of perfection, a world without leftovers, right? When they did all their Tower of Babel calculations, the key was that it stood perfectly. Think of these cats as like OCD builders of the Babylon Towers. Think of a Babylonian as the one who sees the slave as the leftover that's necessary to build his perfection, right? The slaves were the leftovers, the weak forced to build the perfection towers. Now, if you see it that way, you understand what Chuck D is rapping about. He's rapping to the leftovers about the shadow of Babylon. But here's a really cool notion. Christian old school theology finds magic in the leftovers. Christianity is weird this way. It's not alone by any means. The leftovers were always valued in the old world, but they were valued in a mystical way. For Christians and for Christ, the leftovers are what are offered and given to Babylon for their salvation. I mean, Christ was the ultimate leftover, right? He's calling out the Babylonian leaders and the Pharisees and the hedge fund companies and the Board of Education because, like, no offense, they're all very conformed to the world. Remember that little phrase, be not conformed to the world? So the world here is shaping up to have a cult or a culture. And a cult is simply that which, right, is worshipped. A cult is the enzyme in any culture. And a cult is defined by worship. And if you think of a triangle, a hierarchy, the worship is done to the highest principle. And so the Babylon culture has a principle, and the principle at the top is command and control the material world in order to make it better. And that principle of Babylon has been around old and new. So if you think about it, Babylon is the way of the world, of the fallen world. Both old world notions, fallen Babylon, but they're old world notions that really have been forgotten by the light people. So go listen again to an earlier pod we did on eugenics and race. The eugenicists called bad test takers morons. Like, that was a medical term. You know, oh, looks like you have sepsis. It looks like you're a moron. It looks like you, oh, look, your son has cerebral palsy. Oh, look, your son is a moron. It was like a medical term, okay? Before that, 
over here in the West. You had elite landowners, right, of the East American coast, the Anglican plantation owners, basically. They called the Scots-Irish who came, the Scots-Irish indentured clan servants, the indentured servants, they called them the meaner sort. That's a nice nickname. Today, we just call them white trash. And I'm not even going to get into the N-word. I mean, how obviously is that a word about the leftovers? It's kind of obvious. You can see Babylon in the New World Educational Institutions, too, in this part of the world. The institutions that overvalue reading fancy words and undervalue leftover skills like fixing toilets and really cool car engines, leftover stuff. And you can see Babylon in the architecture of the Portuguese fort that I stood in called the Ile de Mochambique. You can see the walls. You can see how stout and square they are, how perfectly, perfectly commanded they are. You can see them stretch out endlessly. There was, this fort was massive. You can see them like mirrors, one after the other, stretching out toward the sea. You can see how mathematical it is. You can see that how inviting the fort is to the sea, how it invites the sea right up to its footing, like F-U-C, you can't, here's a middle finger to you, Mr. Ocean. Mother Nature can't do nothing against us, right? It's like this, the fort was a like an homage to Babylon's ability to unsee and obfuscate the part of nature Right? The part of nature that's divine and the part of humanity that's divine. It did both. I will squash you, ocean, just like I squashed these creatures that I'm sending across the sea. I will squash you. Babylon, the way the world operates, the way of the world. I mean, you think it's just by chance Christ says, I have overcome the world? He's not talking about like, North America, the continent. I have overcome North America. I have overcome the polar ice caps. I've overcome the round orb. I have overcome the way that you people do biz. You can't. You can't wake up to that biz anymore and not be struck by that splinter that's in your mind anymore. I've overcome it. You don't get to do it anymore without losing Right, a bit of your conscience. Yeah, man. Who's enlightened? Edward Gibbons said it was the light people. Well, he actually, he and a bunch of other historians actually named themselves the enlightened ones. Right? That old movement named themselves the enlightenment. What? Huh. Which is the light? So that begs a whole new podcast about what is overcoming the world means. But it really doesn't. It's just another day of heavy things lightly on Watar. I hope all of you are doing well. I hope this story about this slave fort doesn't leave you sad. Don't be sad. It's the way of the world. Just, I guess the way is to overcome it. You don't have to do the way of the world stuff. So... From South Carolina, where those cats, Charleston was a big importer. Like a lot of the people who got on the boat where I was standing in Mozambique got off the boat in Charleston. That happened a lot. 
usually stopping in Barbados first. But anyway, maybe we'll talk about that if you're interested. Shenis Gagimarjos to everybody out there. That means to you the victory. That's often said at the KB table in Georgia. That's our pod for today. Thank you for coming along. Watar is produced by Andrew Schwartz and Daniel Paternos. Our pod is brought to you by the creators of First Things Foundation, a nonprofit that lives and works in some of the world's most forgotten places, like Mozambique. But it's not really forgotten. Not at all. If you're interested in coming to work for us, please do. Well, please write us. You can find it in the, the crib notes in the show notes. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. We are ready to send some folks to Africa right now. Give us a call. Share Watar with friends. Hit us up with solid reviews. Really do that, actually. Could you could you be intentional about that? That would help. Nakvamdis. And peace to those folks in Georgia. We've had some sojourners join us. And right now, as I record this, are in Georgia on a tour, a trip, a vacation, a COVID curtain vacation, and really loving it. Good news in Georgia. Hasta luego, Cambufo. And peace out to all of you. <laughs>